0: Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Maniker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This May 15th and 16th, Phillips will auction Jean-Michel Basquiat's rare self-portrait and five other works from the estate of famed hip-hop producer Matt Dyke. The works were gifts from the artist directly to Dyke, during a period when Basquiat was becoming famous and Dyke had yet to break through to his later musical success. During this podcast, produced in collaboration with Phillips to explore the stories behind the self-portrait, we will hear from Fred Hoffman, who worked with Basquiat closely during his time in Los Angeles.
1: This particular work is, uh, is er, is a major early example of key uh, uh, iconography of for, for Jean-Michel Basquiat. There's just no way around it. That's what I think makes it so exciting, that it, it's one of the richest uh, iconographic uh, statements uh, in, that he had executed up to this
2: moment in time.
0: But first, we're going to speak to Scott Nussbaum, who is head of 20th Century and Contemporary Art at Phillips.
2: This season, we are beyond excited to be offering these works, um, which we have titled To Repel Ghosts, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat from the collection of Matt Dyke. The centerpiece of the collection is this remarkable self-portrait that Jean-Michel gave to Matt, presumably soon after he painted it. It is extraordinarily rare to have uh, works like this that have been in one home since they were acquired uh, directly from the artist. The self-portrait is a, 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 a legendary painting. Very few people knew where this painting was. It was a painting that had been whispered about, that had been remarkably filmed uh, by Tamara Davis um, when it was painted, Jean-Michel. There's actually footage of Jean-Michel painting this painting. But then it disappeared, and nobody knew what happened to it. So when we were, <laughs> when we were approached, um, about this, this, this group of works, but in particular the self-portrait, my heart started beating very rapidly because I realized that this was a work, the work, that had been whispered about but nobody had had seen since it was painted. Um,
0: did, did no one um, know about it because uh, it, it was given to Dyke? So early in Basquiat's uh, career, and Dyke was sort of a, a, a unique personality. Let's say, mm-hmm. in that he didn't seem to, you know, he didn't have parties at his ha- house. He wasn't part of the collector circuit and uh, and all. It was, you know, in a lacuna.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, Matt, I think, was one of the few people, the few collectors of Jean-Michel's work, who never let it go. So it, it was never uh, uh, released for. Retrospectives, books. Uh, never been seen, basically outside of the handful of people who had seen it in Matt's home, and uh, uh, you know, particularly towards the end of his life, he kind of withdrew um, and uh, uh, and disappeared. Um, so, as I say, you know, the the when Tamara Davis did her you know remarkable documentary um, documentary, A Radiant Child, and there's footage of Jean Michel painting this work. Everyone wanted to know what happened to it. A few people knew that Matt owned it. And I remember years and years ago, when I had first started taking interest in Jean-Michel's work, this must have been 15 years ago now, I remember having a conversation with a dealer who said, you know, you you, you have to find Matt Dyke. You have to find this guy who was a friend of Jean-Michel's and who, who owns these incredible works. And I spent a long time trying to track him down. And I considered myself very good at uncovering gems like this and I got nowhere.
0: He, he became a major um, figure in American music uh, mm-hmm. a, a few years uh, uh, later.
2: Mm-hmm. He's got these
0: big hit uh, uh, songs and he's part of the team of people behind um, the Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique, mm-hmm. uh, and everyone sort of credits him as being the, the sort of sampling king, the guy who had the encyclopedic knowledge of, uh, of music and could pull out all the various riffs that make that layered um, album. So he, he was a, a visible guy, at least for a period, and then he just disappeared?
2: Absolutely, yeah, that's exactly what, what happened. You know, he has this uh, encounter with Jean-Michel at an NYU dormitory in the late 1970s, and they immediately strike a, a friendship and then are reunited on the West Coast You know, uh, in, in 1982, 1983, when, Jean Michel first has his a uh, uh, show at Larry Gagosian Gallery, and they become you know very close friends.
0: It just so happens that Matt Dyke is working for Gagosian at this point. He's a, a gallery assistant that that he sort of drifted in in the same way from a, NYU to LA, but also through the art business, so that they converge through Gagosian. It's not that uh, you know Gagosian said, "Hey, do you need an assistant? Call up a buddy." Mm-hmm. It was he worked uh, Matt Dyke worked for Gagosian before he became a, a record. That's
2: that's exactly right. So at that point, you know, it's it's real kismet. I think. I mean, it's it's at that point, Matt Dyke was not nobody knew who Matt Dyke was uh, at all. He was a uh, uh, an assistant at, at Larry Gagosian Gallery, and there's this great story about when Jean Michel moved uh, uh, to L.A. and and Larry basically said, you know what? I think uh, I'll put you in touch with a couple of people your age. You know, the gallery assistant Matt Dyke and uh, and, and Tamara Davis. And uh, uh, in our catalog, I think we refer to this this meeting that, that Matt has uh, uh, with Jean Michel, where they hop into a car together, and Matt says, "Hey, I know you," and Jean Michel's, you know, doesn't isn't really catching on, and then and then he, you know, Matt tells him about, oh, you know, I was the DJ in the dorm at Weinstein dormitory at uh, NYU, and you kept on telling me to play these songs over and over again, and then Jean-Michel, you know, it was like this light bulb went off, and, and you know, of course the rest is history. But it's uh, it was total kismet that they came together again after all those years.
0: Well, and that and that both Tamara Davis and Matt Dyke had side hustles that would go on beyond, uh, to become <laughs> their defining professional pursuits. Absolutely, yeah, That absolutely. would both give us the record in this um, uh, uh, film and uh, end up with uh, uh, Dyke owning... These works, this whole group of works, which also include um, uh, another painting and four uh, uh, drawings, uh, and I had a long conversation with uh, Fred Hoffman mm-hmm. about um, sort of the importance of drawing with uh, Basquiat. Fred says that they think there are about 1,000 Basquiat drawings, and in that 82, 83 period, something like 40% of them. Uh, were made. So this is this is part of an intense period in Basquiat's uh, creative life. Mm-hmm. We often talk about 81, 82 being the most sought after years for his uh, uh, paintings. This is a little bit later, but it seems like the, this self-portrait comes at like peak moment in whatever Basquiat's uh, creative um, outburst is.
2: Yeah, no, I'd say that's accurate. I think that uh, uh, this uh, during this uh, period Jean Michel was particularly prolific. Um, I would probably extend the, the dates, uh, which I would consider his his prime period, or at least his first prime period. You know, between eighty one and eighty three or so. Um, but uh, uh, I think at this time, you know, you're absolutely right. Jean Michel considered drawings uh, and works on paper as standalone works of art. I'm not sure that he would necessarily consider paintings even superior who works on paper, and in many ways, the, the works on paper uh, provided him a medium which he could uh, uh, execute quickly and rapidly, and there's this immediacy to the works on paper um, that I think were, were incredibly important to Jean-Michel. Um, and uh, this collection has four you know, fantastic varied works on paper. Uh, there's a beautiful uh, standing figure. Um, there's this incredibly haunting uh, blue-faced, almost fragment of a sheet of paper uh, uh, that Jean-Michel painted on. There's a beautiful red and black figure, uh, and there's this also really interesting work on paper where he references various insects, and all of these things are concepts that are just rushing through Jean-Michel's mind, and the and and the paper actually provides him a medium where he can get those concepts directly uh, uh, down and painted and executed in a way that uh, you know you couldn't necessarily do on. A medium like canvas or on doors or anything like that.
0: And, and there's a sense with um, this sort of period in LA that he's working a little bit like he worked with um, uh, Anina Nose in the sense it's like you know here's 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 a, everything you need. Uh, and, and block out, well, I guess they're n- not blocking out distractions in LA, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, sort of go crazy, and, and he's just sort of there, and at, I wouldn't call it a vacation, but it's just, you know, he, he's there to work, and he works.
2: Yeah, I think that that's one thing that uh, LA provided uh, uh, Jean-Michel was um, uh, the freedom um, and a lack of distractions, which enabled him to focus on, on making art. And uh, I think that's exactly one of the reasons why he was so prolific at that particular time. And then the, the the work is just so incredible, it's so vital, and it's so vibrant uh, uh, during that that, that period. Um, I think there were certain pressures and, and, and um, uh, things in, in New York time which prevented him from working uh, uh, so focused and so purely, like he was able to do that in LA.
1: Um.
0: Can we talk uh, just a little bit about the the, the Basquiat market? Mm-hmm. Um, there's obviously been a lot of attention about it in the last few years, uh, uh, since re- really since the big sale um, of Adam Lindemann's, uh, you know, Devil Work, with mm-hmm. him, followed a, a year later by the even bigger sale of the the head. But, but more importantly, we've had the this well, two versions of the same show in in, in Paris at the. Um, LVMH and uh, here at the Brandt Foundation that have kind of had the effect that that most people long for with an artist of really drawing people in uh, I feel like uh, the uh, the LVMH they did so much with the works on paper. The imagery is similar but uh, uh, different. Uh, and here the Brand Foundation had that extraordinary wall of those later works of the sort of external stretchers that are mm-hmm. bound in an exposed stretchers. All. Yeah. Uh, all. Um, but there were also so many other interesting works in in, in that show that I think you know yet people obsess over this early period, but gave everyone a much sort of broader sense of um, uh, Basquiat uh, as an artist. Have we really seen an effect of those shows
2: yet? They uh, continue, I'll put it that way, um, to uh, have a general positive impact on on Jean-Michel's market. I mean, Jean-Michel, the amazing thing is that his art is just so universally loved and appreciated And I think that his influence over the years only continues to grow, and it doesn't know any international bounds. So, these shows, the element of the MH show was, I think, uh, remarkable, not only for basically reproducing this famous Robert Miller Gallery installation of all these works on paper, um, but also just really showing the depth and breadth of all of Jean Michel's work. Not just, as you mentioned, the early work, the late work, um, you know, to have this. Room at the top of the building that was filled with his, you know, late collage paintings, and then the the, the remarkable "Riding with Death" painting at the, at the very end. I mean, that I think that, that that really made people reconsider his entire body of work. It's not just about one particular era. It's 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 everything, um, and the and the Brand Foundation show here is just is just continuing that. It's. Uh, you know, it's no coincidence that uh, uh, you know that show was immediately sold out, and they increased uh, the the openings, and then that was immediately sold out. Um, Jean-Michel's popularity just continues to grow, and I think it will also be further boosted by a number of other shows on the horizon, not only this year and next. The Guggenheim Museum is doing a small show centered around one of Jean-Michel's work this year. The MFA Boston is doing a show around Jean-Michel's work as well. And then there will be a show at the Mori Art Museum in Tokyo next year. There's a show in Australia again next year. And I think that also speaks to just his... how there are no boundaries to the appreciation of his work.
0: Well, it also feels like we're finally remedying the fact that there are very few of his works in institutions, So mm-hmm. he's been the great anomaly of Basquiat is to be such a well-known and popular artist which is many many artists are popular without being valuable. Mm-hmm. Many are, are, are popular and va- valuable and in institutions, mm-hmm. but it's rare for uh, it to be uh, popular and valuable, but not really owned by um, uh, many museums. The, now the complaint is it's so valuable it's hard to get them in, into uh, these collections. But it certainly seems that there are now more museum shows centered around Basquiat. I think the last one in New York before um, the Brandt Foundation was was the
2: Brooklyn Museum notebook show. The Brooklyn Museum, I think, was the, the previous uh, show dedicated to Jean-Michel's work. And then uh, prior to that, the Brooklyn Museum also had a beautiful retrospective of his work. And I think that you're you're right. I think there's there, there's a certain perception among a lot of museums that uh, they missed the boat, but I fundamentally believe that in the next several years, you will see that remedied. jean michel is, 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 is too important of an artist. And I think that all institutions recognize that now. And I think that they uh, will collectively doing their best to remedy the lack of works within their permanent collection.
0: You mentioned writing with death. Which came up in my conversation with um, uh, Fred uh, Hoffman because we were talking about the lower half of the self-portrait mm-hmm. sort of um, devolves on one side into a red line on the mm-hmm. o- other into uh, bones. The the uh, leg bone that's uh, drawn there is r- immediately reminiscent of Riding with De- Death, which is a a figure on top of a Course that's made up of uh, uh, of bones, and I was asking Fred if there were many other works that had bones in, in them, and he couldn't think of b- very many.
2: Anatomy was a pretty critical component of a lot of Jean Michel's work. You know, he, he, he very famously was in an accident when he was very young. When he was recovering from that accident, his mother gave him a copy of Gray's Anatomy, which he devoured. I think that from that moment, that moment was so impactful for him that he was constantly aware of the concept of mortality, and I think because of that, you see a lot of those elements in, in his work might not necessarily translate into full skeletons or anything like that, but uh, certainly on his works on paper, there are uh, any number of works devoted to pages from Grey's Anatomy, and elements do pop up in, 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 in paintings here and there, where you'll see you know, a random leg bone, or a thigh bone, or or, or an arm bone, wrist bone, things like that. Um, and uh, the self-portrait, I think, is is a particularly potent expression of that awareness of of mortality, as is writing with death. Um, uh, and I do think that is a common thread throughout his entire work.
0: Well, well, I mean, that's sort of the thing that hangs over. Uh, uh, all of Basquiat's career is mm-hmm. the, the knowledge that he's not going to live to uh, for very long yeah. and then all this stuff is, is Happening and how much of it is, is self-conscious. Are there many self-portraits as well?
2: There are, uh, yes, and the short answer is uh, uh, that Jean-Michel did paint uh, quite a few works which most people consider self-portraits. Um, I think the uh, there are a handful that are, uh, that he uh, did in 1981, 82. Um, there's a particularly powerful uh, self-portrait that he did of, of, of him standing figure, I think, holding a, an arrow. There were a couple of paintings that, that he called self-portrait as a heel that he did in 1982. Um, and then he embarks on this series of, of what I would call kind of more silhouette-based self-portraits, which... I think the present work is is probably the finest example, uh, or the most complete and complex example that there is. Um, and as far as I've been able to determine, there's about eight or nine of those silhouette self portraits that 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 he painted. Um, but I think the the, the portrait, the self portrait, was a very uh, potent image for him, and one that he repeated throughout his
0: The self portrait, it's a door and uh, another a door with a. a, a Piece of plywood, sort of uh, screwed uh, to the top of it, and it, it kind of reminds me that uh, there was a period where people wanted paintings, mm-hmm. very you know straightforward paintings, and then uh, especially recently, when you, I think it was a year ago, mm-hmm. uh, sold uh, a work on slats. Was that from the estate, or was it correct? Uh, which uh, there was also that incredible gold uh, work on uh, uh, slats in the. Um, a branch show, mm-hmm. there there seemed to be almost a turn in interest where people wanted um, works that are on these uh, non-traditional uh, formats uh, and all. Uh, is, is that just, you know, Uh, a change of uh, of taste? Is it really people would prefer a great painting uh, uh, these days? I mean, how does the market uh, sort of adjust
2: around that? Well, I think it just shows really the maturing of Jean-Michel's market. Um, I think one of his great breakthroughs when he moved to LA was that he kind of uh, moved beyond just the classic canvas as a medium, and he started using the wood slats and found objects much more uh, uh, routinely, and I think that you know, when we sold Flexible on behalf of the uh, the estate last year, that was really a breakthrough moment where uh, uh, the market recognized that these are an incredibly important body of work and that found objects, wood slats, are an incredibly important medium for Jean-Michel. Um, these, uh, uh, the gold griot, which he referred to in the, uh, in the Broad collection, is just uh, uh, also incredibly beautiful important work. I would also suggest that the Grillo painting that the LVMH Foundation owns, which is currently on view, is also one of Jean-Michel's most important uh, profound works, which is constructed uh, out of various wood elements, and the doors are just an extension of that. They are a, a reflection of a medium that Jean-Michel considered very, very important. And uh, uh, I think in a funny way, give a very human element to this work and, and, and make it all the more haunting because a door is basically constructed on a human scale. Um, and when you encounter these works, I think you very much feel the presence of Jean-Michel. You feel the, very much the presence of the, the self-portrait and the figures that are portrayed there. I think that's one of the very special things about this painting also, is that uh, it it is very difficult to know who Jean-Michel was. You know, during our exhibition, we will be uh, uh, screening some footage of Tamara Davis doing an interview of Jean-Michel, which gives you a sense, some sense of of who he was. But I think what what makes this self-portrait particularly special is that you feel it. You feel him when you stand in front of it. There's no question that it's him. There's a... There's a, a spirituality about this work. There's a presence about this work that is just so acute that when you stand in front of it, you can't help but feel it. It's very moving for me to see this the, the first time. It's 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 a powerful work. Um, there's there, there's something very uh, just impactful, haunting about this work that even after you walk away from it, you remember it. It kind of sears itself into your into your brain. It's it's. It's almost an emotional thing, um, which I, I, I find just mesmerizing, and which makes this, I think, such a special, special moment for, for us uh, uh, and, and anybody who appreciates Jean-Michel's work to, to see.
0: That sounds like a perfect place to stop. <laughs>
2: thank you, Scott. <laughs> yeah, thank you.
0: Now we're going to switch gears slightly and speak to Fred Hoffman about the creation of the self-portrait and some of the other drawings and works that are included in the Dyke collection to repel ghosts.
1: In Tamara Davis's uh, historic documentary, The Radiant Child, it, um, there is actual footage of Jean-Michel painting this self-portrait in my studio in, in Venice in 19, uh, early 1983. The other works in the collection, there's actually uh, um, five other works, four of which are works on paper, and in, in the fifth work is a small painting on plywood. Um, the works are, uh, and they were all gifted to, to, to Matt, and they were actually discovered in Matt's uh, residence in, in the Hollywood Hills after Matt, for years, the self-portrait, was actually in Matt's uh, business. Uh, at you know, he, he was a very well uh, an acclaimed record producer. Um, his record label was called Delicious Vinyl, and uh, in the studios for Delicious Vinyl, and actually another. Uh, promotional video that Tamara Davis made uh, for Delicious Vinyl, you can see the uh, two-part self-portrait in the background with Matt and his uh, partner, Matt, Mike Ross, sitting on a couch talking to Tamara in the camera uh, with the, the, this haunting self-portrait in the background.
0: Yeah, well, one gets the impression that the self-portrait had pride of place among uh, Dyke's uh, possessions. Oh, yeah. It was clear, yeah.
1: Matt had several other works that he sold off over the years. They were all works on paper, nothing in comparison to this self-portrait. I mean, this self-portrait is one of the standalone um, self-portraits that John Michelle made in his lifetime
0: and do, we can assume that these things were given at different times or or was it sort of all given at you know as a group?
1: I, I i would think that they were all given at a little bit different times i mean the i mean I, based on my conversations with Tamara Davis who i'm friendly with and have somewhat of a regular dialogue with uh when i went to see her a few months ago about the self portrait she recounted to me that um uh, re- reminding me that it had been made in my studio, and then upon its completion, Jean Michel asked Tamara to bring a vehicle to my studio, and Jean Michel and Tamara together took the piece to Matt's apartment in West Hollywood. Um, so, in I mean, I, I in terms of the. Gifting of the work, I can't speak anything to that, but I, I assume it happened after it was in in that possession. Maybe it was happened while it was still in, it being painted. I have no idea. The other works uh, uh, were clearly all done around the same time. I mean, based upon the imagery, and uh, you know, the, and, and other factors about the the pieces, I can easily date the pieces to. Uh, Sometime in 82 or 83, but I can't be specific about when they were made and or when they were gifted. Uh, uh,
0: because he was out in Venice two separate times? Uh, well, John so yeah, I mean,
1: Michel came to, to Venice, started working and residing in Venice in November 82, and he worked there throughout the winter and opened a show at Larry's uh, West Hollywood Gallery, it would be in John Michel's second exhibition with Larry in uh, April of 1983, after which he, well, he hung out during the, the month that the show was on and then left for about, I can't remember exactly, but it was you know, six or eight weeks. And then uh, while he was still here, he made it clear that he would like to come back and also that he wanted to have his own studio. So I found him uh, uh, his, his own studio also on Market Street in Venice, and John michel moved into that studio um, Sometime in the middle of uh, 1983, I can't remember exactly. I, somehow, I remember it was really warm, so I suspect it was July or August. Um, and we got him settled in the studio, and he stayed in that, worked in that studio. It didn't stay like you know every day uh, in Los Angeles, but he was here for weeks on end, and then would leave and come back, and stayed here through, I would say, May of 19, or, or maybe late April, early May of 1984.
0: So that's a, a very um, productive period for uh, Basquiat.
1: The 82-83 period is definitely one of the most prolific periods for Jean-Michel, and uh, um, not only in terms of number of works, but in also in terms of the uh, having produced many of the most recognized, acclaimed works that he created uh, in his life. When he was in Los Angeles, he also produced a great number of very, uh, accomplished and highly recognized works of art. He also developed a, a few new working procedures here in Los Angeles. So he, when he started to work on um, wood slat, slat panels, uh, which we actually retrieved uh, from the fence that was in the back of his studio, um, he in turning them into picture supports and resulting in works such as Flexible, which was sold last uh, um May at at, at Phillips, uh, he, so he produced uh, many of these the the first most recognized the wood slab pieces here and also in 1984 uh, with my assistance John Michel made a number of works using silkscreen as the basis of generating images um, and was produced uh, approximately I don't know 30 to 40 paintings in 1984 um, using silkscreen techniques uh as part of his working process which he then went on to do back in new york uh, first on his own and then in collaboration with uh, andy warhol
0: right where they did uh, the brand icons basquiat uh silk screening onto those um collaboration works or i always thought it was warhol was silk screening the um the brand icons and uh basquiat was painting it's the
1: reverse it I mean, those are the only hand-painted paintings that Andy made since the 50s. Andy actually hand-painted many of the images, the icon images, in the in the collaborative works. And Jean-Michel often laid down his imagery with silkscreen. It's a, it's a combination back and forth. And, the and works are both... Uh,
0: what kind of imagery was he silkscreening? Is it like the repetition, like what he did with um, Xeroxes uh, later? Or uh, was it specific?
1: Uh, there's a... I mean, there, there's a, a wide range. There's some very uh, intense head images. There's um, celestial references. There's a few uh, uh, nature references. It was a wide array of different kinds of images uh, that happened. The way we worked was as Jean Michel would uh, uh, generate uh, modest size works on paper, simple drawings. I would retrieve them and take them to a photo lab and have them photographically um, transferred into acetates that would then be uh, taken to another lab and laid down onto screens um, and then bring the uh, images in, now embedded in a screen to back to the studio. And I set up a whole crew of assistants that were familiar with silk screening processes and they assisted Jean-Michel in putting those uh images directly onto the canvases and they would lay down an image he would then they would back away he would then paint into the image or over the image or suggest another image and it was sort of a back and forth additive process building up uh, both hand painting and silkscreen images
0: you also mention in your um essay uh that Basquiat created something like a thousand drawings and that drawings were were something he did not as preparatory works um for paintings but but simply to draw and to make images and that uh, something like half am I have that correct of the drawings were done in this 82 to 83 period
1: this is just my estimate i mean i've discussed this with a few people who i you know who have been a, or have been around as long as I have, and one other person, Enrico Navarro, who's I considered a, a who's a, a, you know, a dealer in Paris and publisher, has published many of the books on Bosquet. Um, and we both agree that there's at least a thousand works on paper. We might be, uh, there might actually be more. Um, you know, I I I think at least forty percent of. Uh, of I think I probably could find 400 works on paper from '82, '83. Yeah, there's a lot. Jean Michel was incredibly um, um, motivated for the production of works of, of artworks in that period of time. He was always, always working, and he was did a lot of traveling. I mean, Jean Michel in '82, '83. Had I think about eight or nine different shows all over um, between you know New York, LA, Rotterdam, uh, uh, Zurich, uh, Tokyo. Um, So he was on the move a lot, and he was always uh, creating artwork even when he was traveling. And he he always had a notebook in hand, or or had you know sheets of uh, you know drawing paper, twenty. Two by thirty-inch sheets of Arches drawing paper, readily at hand, and always had, uh, you know, oil paint sticks and, and 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 sometimes pastel, not very often, but a few times, and of course, you know, or, or, uh, graphite. So the, uh, he was always working. So he could be in a hotel room and he could generate, you know, twenty works in in four hours, six hours. He just put his head down and he was just gone. At the time of Jean-Michel's death, um, he um, had at least 27 different head images in his possession. They were all uh, shown in 1990 at this famous uh, exhibition at the Robert Miller Gallery. And that whole wall in Paris, that whole hanging was based upon a hanging that was first done at the Robert Miller Gallery, an installation uh, conceived of by John John, who was the gallery director of Robert Miller's gallery then. Um, and uh, I mean, if you go back and look at the catalog for the Robert Miller Show, um, I mean, there's probably, I don't know, there's well over 100 works of art in that catalog. John Michel did not think of drawing as a preparation for image making on a canvas. Sometimes. I mean, the, the drawings serve a variety of purposes. I've actually gone into this in pretty good depth in the uh, two of the books I've written, the one for Aquavella on, and my recent book, The Art of Jean-Michel Bosca. Um, some of Jean-Michel's um, um, works on paper are fully ex- – I mean, they're no different than a painting. They're fully executed works of art. Uh, as rich and as complex as anything he did in painting. There's a group of work in the Daros collection in Zurich, Zurich um, that were um, executed in 1982-83. It's one of the most profound groups of works on paper, I think, have been created by any 20th century artist. Um, and they're actually the only works on paper by Jean-Michel that he actually titled each of the works. Um, and then he, as I said, he was always drawing. He you know, is was taking his op, John Michel's process is basically starts with observation and then through, um, you know, taking in what he's observing and immediately spewing it back out through images. And obviously, you know, a drawing is a very immediate response to things he's observing. So a lot of the head images are a response to actual, probably people he encountered or experiences that he encountered. They're not actually one-to-one likeness to to people, but they uh, convey a range of uh, emotions and psychological states that he obviously became aware of and experienced.
0: Well, that uh, process is kind of what I wanted to lead into next, uh, because Matt Dyke is so famous not just as a record producer and um, uh, having this record label that was uh, so successful in the early years uh, of hip hop. But he has this legendary status as being the source of so many of the samples in Paul's boutique. Once struck by, uh, uh, when, uh, you know, in the Basquiat word uh, uh paintings and in the use of things like silkscreen images and uh, the Xeroxes and all, all that there is some parallel kind of sampling technique going on uh, in, in Basquiat's uh, work as well.
1: Accurate. I, I, I think they recognized each other's talents and, in, 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 you know, and gifts as artists. Uh, but I, you know, what? Not this kind of stuff wasn't really verbalized. Really, it was just, you know, it was just. It was all all about doing. I, I mean, another key thing, by the way, for Boscat that ties into the sampling is, you know, his interest in jazz music was a major influence for for Jean Michel. I mean, he his father was a major jazz aficionado, and Jean Michel grew up around in a home that that music was uh, featured, jazz primarily. So, I mean, Jean Michel was a had an incredible vocabulary of understanding of, of, of all musical forms, especially jazz.
0: And and they were, I think you said that they were sort of uh, also collaborating um, at, at the club, so that whatever. Yeah,
1: definitely. It, I mean, John Michel, I went down, I took John Michel on a few occasions to Power Tools, and he was immediately up there next to Matt, uh, you know, spinning records and sampling music
0: uh one presumes not uh uh Charlie Parker and uh Theolonius Monk in the middle of the dance floor so uh tell me what else have we 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 missed in this whole period uh uh and and specifically about these works I mean, we really haven't talked about the self portraiture well, here
1: yeah, i mean the self portrait is i mean such an important work of art in terms of uh an expression of jean michels vision. Of both himself and I think you know in a, in a larger world view, I mean the the um, um, I mean the 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 portrait on part on the left is very haunting. It's uh, the the top part is fully shows a full figure, and by the time you get down to the to the lower half of the figure, I mean you're you know it's just down to to the skeleton, um, and uh, with this one haunting red line, which is clearly. the Uh, Jean-Michel's own bloodline running from his heart down to his limbs. Um, But the contrast to the other panel, which starts at the bottom with these two drawings that one of them is actually in a very intense kind of maze kind of map. The other one is a compendium of images and uh, mostly texts and a few images referencing aspects of... uh, Uh, earthly existence, you could say materials and earth kind of references and then it moves up through this uh, central section which is more of an abstract passage of paint Um, but coming out of this abstract passage of paint are these two haunting eyes and in fact if you see in Tamara's movie you can actually see the earlier uh, development of this half of the work and you can actually see it was a full head that he painted over, and that the eyes are actually now coming through, so there's sort of this ghost like um, uh, reference from 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 another realm coming through above which are um you can make out the words to repel ghosts, which is one of the you know most profound i guess incantations that jean michel um, professed in 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 a few different works throughout his. Career and this haunting reference to um, you know, you know, dealing with and getting beyond uh, one's fears and one's anxieties. And then this top added-on portion of the work has spaceships in it and other references to a sort of uh, ascent. So it's really sort of a passage from um, what I call the realm of flesh to the realm of spirit. And in a way for me, and I wrote about it in the catalog. It reminds me of uh, Dante's Inferno, which is a, a source that I've documented both here and in other texts that I've written was clearly of influ- interest for, for Basquiat. So it's basically a, a portrait of himself juxtaposed with this uh, personal view as well as worldview.
0: And is that imagery of, of bones a appear many other places. I can only think of the, uh, what's it, the, you know, supposed final work, uh, Riding on Death. Uh,
1: but- well, I think the leg part of this figure is very, has a very, you know, it's interesting and, you know, it's an interesting reference to the Riding with Death figure. Well, course, I think Jean-Michel was astutely aware of the major themes that he was uh, interested in pursuing from a very early time. I mean, this this particular work is is a major early example of key uh, uh, iconography for for Jean-Michel Basquiat. There's just no way around it. That's what I think makes it so exciting, that it's one of the richest uh, iconographic uh, statements uh, that he had executed up to this moment in time. But I've just done a really elaborate... Uh, study on a painting called Masonic Lodge that was sold by the estate at Sotheby's about five years ago. And, uh, and I've had the painting uh, ultraviolet lit and uh, discovered uh, tons and tons of imagery and text underneath the top layer of paint uh, included in is, is a, mul- a multiple number of, of ghost-like heads pe- peering through uh, into the top layer of paint. That's a you know a classic working technique for Bosco building up you know obliterating covering over but still keeping some reference to uh, what what had occurred earlier. You can see that in a lot of really important paintings of Bosco. So the more you look and study it, you'll see uh, stuff coming through if you really spend the time with the work. One of the great things about Bosco he had the confidence to experiment and never you know felt that he had to get it all at once and was wasn't afraid of, you know, painting over something that looked incredibly perfect and finished and, you know, had the confidence to know that he would turn it into something else. I mean, I saw Basquiat paint out complete masterpieces, you know, just my mouth wide open say, oh, my God, and, you know, just sit around another six hours and it turns into something else.
0: Because he just didn't want to stop, not because he not like a, a pentimenti where he's like, "Well, this didn't work out. I'm just gonna uh uh, uh paint it out." It's just. Uh, I don't. I never
1: thought that it was because he thought it wasn't working out. I think he just. It's just. It was all part of a process. I mean, we would never really discussed this in any depth. I mean, I just, as I said, it was more something I would, you know, observe. But uh, and I always saw and always felt he had. Such confidence to you know be willing to take the chance that he was you know it would he'd get back to something that he felt was more appropriate.
2: Yeah. No, I
1: think he always was was concerned about building up a, a theme and subject matter. You know, I can't really say why he painted out things, but I, I mean, I, I, I know that he <clears throat> he he did it uh, somewhat regularly.
0: Yeah. Thank you for all Good. your help, Fred. It's been sure, wonderful.
1: My pleasure. Good. Bye. Good luck. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com.